This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family. When you think about relationships, when you think about the way that we function, whether it's with spouses, with family, with friends, with neighbors, there's one thing that is vitally important. In order to uphold those relationships, in order to hold those things tightly, uh, that, that thing is trust. We cannot function well without trust. I've told my children uh, repeatedly, uh, it takes a long time to gain trust and it takes no time to lose it. I think we all would agree that uh, whenever we feel like there's a loss of trust, there really begins to feel like there's a loss of relationship. And so here's the question. How do you handle betrayal from someone that you trust? How do you handle actually being betrayed by somebody in whom you've placed confidence, in whom you've placed trust, with whom you've built deep intimacy? Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, describes uh, this, this way that we uh, lean on trust in our relationship. She talks about how we build trust and how we lose trust. She compares trust to a jar of marbles. Uh, over time, when someone demonstrates their trustworthiness to you, uh, you start to add marbles to the jar. That's what we do. We add these trust marbles to our collective jars. Now, if they betray our trust, we start pulling marbles out. The safety of that relationship depends on just how many marbles are in the jar. So the severity of the betrayal determines the number of marbles that get removed from the jar. And sometimes the nature of the betrayal can be so vast that we just throw the jar and shatter it. Trust means that much. So, so with that in mind, how do you respond to betrayal from someone that you deeply trust? As we continue this week uh, through the sermon that we started even last week, um, we find Jesus in this very place. Jesus is, uh, he's come to the end of his earthly ministry. He knows that his time is short. This is really going to be the end of his life, uh, his, his life on earth. He's done some things and he's said some things that are causing quite a stir in Jerusalem. Some people are curious. Some people are angry. Some just want to watch him. Some want to kill him. And on this evening, while they're partaking of what we call today the Last Supper, Jesus is talking with his inner circle. He's talking with these, these men in whom he has deposited so much of his life and his heart and his very teachings and all these things for the last better parts of three years. These folks that he has just trusted and spent relationship with and really gained parts of their trust as well, there's deep intimacy amongst this small band of, of friends and disciples. And he's talking with them. And he has just done this incredible, unorthodox act of washing their feet, taking this role of a humble servant. And what are they doing? They are hanging off of every word, hanging off of every action. And then after he does all of that, he instructs them, like we talked about last week. He instructs them to say, hey, in the same way that I've loved you, you love others. Do the same thing that I've done for you. 
And in the end of that discourse, he, start, he warns and says, one of you is going to betray me. As a matter of fact, you could look at this passage that we're getting ready to look at now as a tale of two betrayals. You could honestly say that this part of the text really is kind of a, a juxtaposition of two types of betrayers. And trust me, we all are one of them, if not both at times. And so when you look at this and you see this text as we're reading, be very careful, be very careful not to be too quick to identify with the Jesus of the story while ignoring yourself as the betrayer in the story. We are looking at an incredible case of two people who both had their denial, both had their betrayals prophesied by Jesus. They both had uh, this, we, we almost see this kind of sandwich that's happening. We see a betrayal sandwich. We see uh, the betrayal of one, then this incredible commandment Jesus gives, then the betrayal of another. So knowing this, knowing that we have to be super careful not to just immediately jump to Jesus and miss the betrayers here, we need to see ourselves here. So another question to consider, possibly even more important, is this, how do you respond when you are the betrayer? How do you respond when you are the betrayer? So let's take a deeper dive into this text. Let's take a bite out of this betrayal sandwich and really see what Jesus says because Jesus has something to say to the betrayers. Jesus has something to say to us as the betrayers. So as we're moving through the book of John, let's look at John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. John 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered, entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster 
will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage is very, very telling, and it has a lot more to say about who we are. And I think, it can, again, it can be so easy for us to just look at it as a story and look at it as the incredible things that Jesus says, which we need to, but we almost miss who is Jesus talking to here? Why is John including this story here? Why such detail about the two types of betrayers in this story? We need to see ourselves. We need to locate ourselves, the propensity of our hearts to function like betrayers. We need that or we're going to miss what Jesus has to say to the betrayers that he loves. So we see Jesus has already warned. If you remember our sermon last week, you go through the first, uh, the first 19 or 20 verses of chapter 13. Jesus has already warned his disciples that someone was going to betray him. He told them that not all of them were clean earlier in verse 18. Uh, and then here he quotes, if you, if, you, if you look at the words that he uses here, when he says, uh, truly, uh, one of you will uh, betray me. And then a little bit later, he quotes from Psalm 41.9, the one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. That's what he's quoting from. So Jesus, in many ways, is showing he's, he's bringing up these uh, theological ideas. He's bringing up these scriptural ideas that they may not have understood. They probably have heard or recited Psalm 41 many, many times, not really understanding exactly what it meant. So Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this, and I'm quoting this so that you will know that it's me when it happens. When these things come to pass, you'll know that I truly am the Messiah that had been prophesied long ago. You'll know that it's me, which means you'll believe me. And if you believe me, then you'll receive me, which means you'll receive the Father who sent me. It also means you'll receive anyone that's sent from me. So Jesus, he makes this big claim and he gets very, very theological and he, he, he uses some passages that might even be obscure to them. And then after saying this, the scripture says that he was troubled in his spirit. Now this hits me in a few different places because preachers have always taken uh, the very deep, extra meaty, uh, theological truths, hard to understand uh, doctrines and scriptures, and then they elucidate them in order to make them easily digestible for the congregants, for the hearer. They can sense that they might be losing the congregation. Okay, I just went really deep into this. I just brought up a passage that maybe you guys aren't really connecting. You might not really know what that verse actually means. And for Jesus, you guys don't know that this was really pointing to me. And so Jesus uh, starts to take it even deeper, but makes it simple for them. See, because typical preachers know if we go too deep, Without explaining it in simpler terms, you might lose the crowd and you don't want them to miss the key truth. For those of us that come from a black church context, it's known as making it plain. You'll start preaching, you get a little deep, and people kind of, you think people might start to lose, uh, lose the meaning, and somebody will say, make it plain, Doc, make it plain. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is now making it plain. He went deep. He, he dug deep. He went back to Old Testament passage, showed them that there were things that were pointing to him. And in making it plain, here's what he does. His heart gets troubled and he says, one of you will betray me. That statement, very direct. There's no ambiguity. There's no equivocation. There's nothing enigmatic about the statement. And this is what was troubling Jesus. 
We see that. The fact that somebody was going to uh, betray him was troubling him. And he's like, I'm explaining these things and I'm sharing these things and I'm uh, prophesying these things and you guys still aren't getting a certain aspect here. So let me make it plain for you. He was troubled in his spirit and he said, one of you will betray me. Now here's the question. And this is a big one that we can overlook really easily. Why did this trouble him? That might seem like a silly question, but think about it a little bit more deeply. Why would this trouble Jesus? He knew what was happening. He knew what was coming. He had prophesied that uh, someone would betray him chapters before. So why would he take this posture of being troubled and emotionally vexed? Why would he feel any of those things? I think we need to ask that question because many times for us, In order to avoid emotional anguish, we say things that are just illogical. What do I mean? Well, uh, if we're sometimes even the advice we'll give to somebody else that's dealing with emotional issues, we'll give advice like this. You knew that was going to happen. Why are you so sad? It's hard for me to understand why you're upset when they already told you they would leave. Why are you crying when this isn't even a surprise? Knowledge of pending heartbreak doesn't insulate your heart from breaking. The idea that just because you know a thing is coming doesn't mean you don't feel the loss when it happens. Jesus had all the knowledge in all of the universe. He was God in the flesh. He was omniscient, all-knowing. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew when it was going to happen. He knew who was going to be the perpetrator. And he, he still found himself troubled in his spirit. He was still troubled. If you tell me in advance that you're going to possibly take all the marbles out of my trust jar, it still hurts when I see it empty. And Jesus is there troubled, knowing full well who's going to betray him. Now, the the disciples are stunned here. They're stunned. They're like, whoa, where is this coming from? They're looking at each other. They might even be looking at each other defensively. It's it's not me. Well, it's not me either. Or they may even be looking at each other accusatorially. Is, is it you? It's probably him. They may have been any combination of those. It could have been that. They could have just been earnestly and honestly just inquiring. If we were to think of ourselves, we, we probably would have any number, if not a combination of these responses. At the end of the day, they're uncertain of the one about whom Jesus is speaking. So what do they do? Well, verses 23 through 25, they, there's a phrase used here that's really interesting. Verses 23 to 25, the way it reads, it says, one of his disciples, the one who Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. That in and of itself is an interesting phrase, right? Because which one is that one? Which one is the disciple that Jesus loved? We've touched on this a few sermons before, but this is interesting. That's a phrase that's only used five times and all five times they're used in this gospel and that's it. So, so in this particular, of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, only John uses this phrase, this delineating phrase that separates one disciple from the others. And here we have this, this picture. Later, we're going to see John use this same phrase when talking about the disciple that gets charged to care for Jesus' mother, Mary, right? It says that uh, Jesus looked at the disciple that he loved and said, this is now your mother into your hands and uh, I commit her charge to you. This is the picture that this gospel writer is giving us. The disciple is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Listen, one of the beauties of being the author of a gospel 
is that you get to throw your own shout outs if you want to. <laughs> and one, of the, one of the beautiful things about being able to write uh, a gospel and convey a thing is in many ways, yes, God is giving us his word, but he's doing it through the very personalities of the people who are writing these things down. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they include different things respect, with respect to who they are and how God is using their personalities to convey different attributes and different aspects of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. John is no different. But for whatever reason, John, and, and reasons God uses, John is wanting us to realize, hey, by the way, that's me. I, and in many ways, that's his way of saying, you can authentically trust the words I'm saying because I did have a special relationship with Jesus. The fact that multiple times he's using this phrase, it's almost like he's not going to just flat out say, and then I said, but he's saying the one that he loved. This is the way even in ancient, when you look at ancient Middle Eastern writing, many times people, writers, would find ways to kind of hint that they were there without blatantly being on the nose and saying, and I was there. And so John is doing that. This, he is this special, we talked about this when we started this series, he ended up being the youngest disciple. He's the one that lived the longest. Most folks say that he lived all the way through 80, 90, maybe even 80, 100. So for about, for really 60 to 70 years after Jesus died, John is living and sharing everything that he saw. And he's trustworthy because he had this special relationship with Jesus. And so <clears throat> he includes this passage in there for us so that we really understand this is something that we can trust. But beyond that, when you look at the fact that here it is, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus has this kind of right-hand man, this very close friend who's kind of giving himself a shout-out. That's fine. Um, he thought that it was important for us to know how close they were, but he wants us to know that because it ties into this story. Because what's happening here? Well, we talked about this last week. Think about this. If we're operating off of this very real, very reasonable, and widely accepted assumption that this is John, here John is reclining close to Jesus. Why is he reclining? Like, why would that even be a detail that's necessary? Well, we talked a little bit last week. Historically, in Roman homes, Roman-occupied homes, or in, in just in Roman culture, you had these, these <clears throat> uh, dining tables called triclinium's. Now, a triclinium, you would actually have a table, maybe a four-sided table in the center with three kind of couches with pillows, kind of rows of couches with pillows on, on three sides of the table. And people would recline on those couches, those cushions. Usually they would recline on their left elbow. And so they would be on their left elbow and they would turn and they would eat. That way they could use their right hand, the hand of dominance, to reach to the table and eat with. And so they would lean on one, on one side and they would eat, and then they, but, but they could only really see the person that was in front of them. There was someone behind them as well. So if you wanted to talk to the person behind, you would lean back to talk to them. You would just lean back. And it was not weird for folks, if they had close intimacy, to lean back into each other's chest. It's very different now. We show intimacy amongst friends maybe differently now, but that was not outlandish back then. And so if John is the disciple that Jesus loved and they have a special relationship, this story doesn't seem outlandish at all. So what do we see? They're sitting at this table and they're reclining at this table. People are leaning back and they're eating and they're talking. Now, Peter knows that Jesus, uh, Peter knows that John is very close to Jesus. So it doesn't, it actually isn't a shock at all with how Peter responds. Because again, here we are, they're reclining at the table. They're eating. Jesus says, they've, he, they've already heard him say, one of you is going to betray me. Imagine, 
that has to stop everything. You can almost hear the clinking of the silverware just stop. The record scratches and you're like, wait, what? We're here eating. We're, we're enjoying. You just washed our feet. You just showed us incredible love. You told us to love each other. And now you're saying that one of us is going to betray you. You said it before. We didn't get it. You're saying it again very clearly. And they're responding <clears throat> in the ways that we would. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And it's interesting the way that this is worded. Verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So that, I'd love to be able to see that, by the way, just to see what that would have looked like. Like Peter trying to get the attention of John. Hey, listen. Yes, I know you're the homie. You're close to him. Find out some information because Peter obviously is trying to figure out who it is. Peter is, uh, again, that kind of impetuous kind of character. He's ready to just act. He wants to do something about it. Hey, you find out some information. Give us the scoop. And so John leans back and reclines into Jesus's bosom and says, who is it? And when you look at how Jesus responds, it makes none of this is, is a shock. And I think all of us, given that context, would have done this. We want to know the identity of the potential traitor. We want to know who it is. And so when Jesus says in verse 26, he says, uh, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Jesus ate, Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him and, and Jesus told him what you're doing, do quickly. So Jesus dips this bread and gave it to Judas. And he told Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, apparently, the other disciples didn't hear what Jesus had said about the identity of the potential traitor, right? They didn't hear the answer to John's question. And because Judas was the group treasurer, they probably didn't have any reason to suspect whatever it is that Jesus said to him. They had no reason to think differently or to think uh, uh, something was wrong based on the exchange between Jesus and Judas because Judas was the money man. Judas was the treasurer. Other scriptures tell us that he was skimming off the top and stealing money out of the bag. Judas was in it for himself. They didn't know that. So for them, it wouldn't have been weird. They could have just thought, okay, well, whatever Jesus just said to Judas had to do with maybe some administrative uh, commands, some things that we need to have done, some instructions to make sure that some other things uh, go well. And maybe, maybe Jesus didn't even want them to know about Judas's identity at that point. There's something even in that, right? Those that claim to be close to Jesus but aren't truly following him, and Jesus still protects them even in that moment. Jesus is still protecting. So maybe only one or two of the disciples may have known. Maybe John only knew because maybe he wasn't able to get to, to relay what Jesus said to Peter yet. We don't know. But most of the disciples had no idea because Judas's identity was actually being protected by the very one that he would betray. There's a lot to say about who Jesus is, even in that. Then you see, uh, imagine now what Jesus has to be thinking. Uh, I'm sorry, what Ju Judas has to be thinking. Judas recognizes Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows exactly the contents of my heart. He knows the content. He knows the intent. He, know ex he knows exactly what I'm getting ready to do. So much so that he looks at me and he says, hey, I know what you're getting ready to do. Just hurry up and get it over with. That has to be completely earth shattering for Judas to just process and to sit with. His identity is known. Now, what's also interesting is you see this idea of Judas, the betrayer, and you see uh, the, the things that maybe were happening in his heart, including Satan uh, affecting and impacting his heart. 
But you also see another betrayal here in this story. If we skip down uh, to some of the later verses in 36 through 38, you see Peter also being a betrayer. See, it's interesting. Peter wanted to know the identity and Jesus answers with Judas. And then later, Peter is told that he's going to be guilty of another type of betrayal, denial, outright denial. Look at verses 36 through 38. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter's promising to be loyal. He's like, I will lay my life down for you. But Peter is like us. It's really easy to rag on Peter as opposed to going, man, there's more Peter in me than there is any of these other characters. Peter plays such a prominent role probably because God wants us to see ourselves in Peter so that we know that Jesus died for Peter. Jesus dies for betrayers. Jesus dies for deniers. Peter is like us. We love the idea of loyalty, but we don't even consider the cost of loyalty. And usually that means we don't understand the true value of the one to whom we are pledging our loyalty. Many times we mean well, just like Peter did. In the moment, we feel very loyal. We've all been there. Something happens, an event happens, and that, that, that moment, it's like, I am loyal right now. Whatever you need from me right now, I will do. We feel very loyal. But that's the danger of living just for the moment. You don't consider what the long-term investment actually means. If a person isn't considering or even talking about what the future looks like with you, they may not even be invested in the present either. Peter is loyal in his own mind, but in fairness, he was loyal to an idea of Jesus that wasn't fully understood. So what do we learn from Peter? What do we learn about us? That you can make outlandish promises based on faulty premises. If you have a faulty understanding of who Jesus is, what you're devoting yourself to will be ineffective. So Peter doesn't know any better. He's basically basing his loyalty off of a faulty understanding or maybe an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. And he means well, right? He's very sincere. And what have we said for years here? You can be sincere in a thing and be sincerely wrong. And here Peter is acting out of his sincerity, but also his lack of real understanding and a lack of real clarity. And Jesus tells Peter, a rooster won't crow until you've denied me three times. So we've got a tale of two betrayals here. We've got Peter's betrayal. We've got Judas's betrayal. And we see them kind of buttressed up against each other for a very specific purpose. Let's look at some comparisons between them. Both were told that they would betray Jesus. Both ended up betraying Jesus. Both had time to reconsider their actions. Judas had at least two opportunities in, this in these, these last few chapters to change his plan that night. Jesus warned him twice of what was going to happen. He warned in general what was going to happen. Judas had multiple opportunities to change his course of action. Peter had time to reconsider after his first two denials and still went on to deny the third time. They both had multiple chances before these things that were prophesied happened. But what was the difference between these two? In other words, why did one man commit suicide and another man became a key leader in Jesus' church? 
What's the difference between these two men? These are definitely two people who are in different ways are functioning betrayers, right? In different ways, don't see Jesus for who he truly is. In different ways, are not actual followers to the extent that Jesus would would acknowledge them as fully faithful disciples of his. So what's the difference? They both have these issues. They both have these these different aspects of their heart condition. How do we uh, figure out or how do we uh, ascertain where the real difference is between two types of betrayal? It's not the same. Well, here's where we see it. The answer to that question boils down to repentance. It boils down to repentance. One repented and one did not. Now, look, this isn't to say that they didn't both show grief. This isn't to say that uh, they didn't both show sorrow. But being sorry, showing grief, or even having regret isn't necessarily repentance. You can be sorry about a thing and never truly repent. That's the reason why you can be sorry about the thing 17, 70, 700 times and just continue. Why? Because there never was true repentance. There was just maybe regret and sorrow. Matthew 26 tells us Judas felt so bad about what he did. He felt so bad about what he had done. The scripture actually uses the word that we would use to, to, to say uh, remorse. He showed real remorse. He had remorse about what he did. And he felt so bad about it that he took his life. But in all of his bad feelings, you know what he never did? He never turned back to Jesus. You see, repentance is not just being sorry. Repentance is not just, I feel bad. Repentance is not just, I'm, I'm sad that I got caught. Repentance isn't, I hate that I have these consequences as a result of my actions. Repentance is, I need to turn back to Jesus so that the, the glacier underneath the iceberg can be dealt with. That's what repentance truly is. And what you see is that Judas was full of regret, but no repentance. Regret will eat away at you. But regret alone will never help you change. It'll never help you lead to anything positive. You'll just sit there and you'll ponder things you wish you had done differently. Regret might mean you wish it didn't happen. It, it, It might mean that you're sorry it happened, but it doesn't mean that you're willing to change. Also, the regret of Judas focused on the fact that he did something wrong. Judas was upset with himself messing up. You realize that sometimes we think because we get so down on ourselves, we think that's the job. Uh, We think we're doing so well and we're showing real repentance simply because we're so hard on ourselves. But sometimes that's rooted in a form of pride. Why? I should be better. I should do better. I am better than this. I have more in me. It's always I, I, I. The function of his frustration is himself being the failure. And so Judas might be someone who was so frustrated with the fact that he failed, upset with himself messing up, but not the fact that he had sinned against Jesus. He had regret, but he didn't have repentance. Now look at Peter's response to his sin. When you look throughout uh, the rest of scripture, we see Peter having deep anguish after the denial three times. We see Peter having deep anguish, right? The same kind of anguish. He's he's feeling regretful. He had hurt the man he had come to know and love. But his point wasn't that he messed up. We've seen way too much of Peter. I think Peter was probably used to the fact that 
he messed up. Peter was somebody that knew what it was to live with a bunch of mistakes and bad decisions. Peter had that habit throughout his life. I bet Peter was one that was like, oh, here I am again. I just messed up yet again, which I think a lot of us have felt. If you're honest about your life and honest about your heart, you probably can see patterns where you're like, man, I thought I was far along and there's that again. Man, I'm falling again. Man, I still have that brokenness again. And listen, it's not to say that that regret isn't part of the, the role of what it means to follow Jesus. We should feel bad about things in, in times when we fail. We should feel like any area in our lives that don't look like we're following him. We should feel badly about that, but it shouldn't end there. And where you see Peter go, Peter's not just, I messed up. He was used to messing up. He wasn't just sorry that he made a hurtful decision. He was sorry that he hurt his Lord. He was sorry that he violated his Savior. In other words, regret is often focused on self, but repentance is often focused on God. If I'm focused on God, then I'm like, Lord, I hate the fact that I've broken your heart yet again. And so this is what it's going to mean to turn to you. It means I'm going to put things in place so that I can turn away from the things that made it possible for me to hurt you. That's the way we should function with each other. Not just be sorry, but genuinely repent. I see the things that caused this fissure between us. And not only am I hurt at what this has caused in us, but I'm so hurt because I know that our unity means so much to God and my sin and my issues caused me to forego God's heart on this. And I love him and I love you. So I want to do everything in my power to turn away from my selfishness, turn back to God so that I can functionally and truly and effectively turn back to you. That's what repentance looks like. And so every time when you look at these constant areas in Peter's life where he falls, you see the separation between Peter and Judas. It's not in the fact that they both do wrong. It's what they do after they do wrong. Every time Peter falls, he repents and goes back to Jesus in humility and in faith. Look, look, it's not a shock that we follow Peter's life throughout Acts. And yes, it's super easy to pile on Peter. It's super easy to just take shots at Peter as if we're not Peter. But when you look at his life, he's often hasty. He's often impetuous. He's often reckless. At one point in Acts, he's even practicing a form of ethnic segregation. But at, so all those things we can look at, that's a bad attribute. That's not cool. This guy seems like a racist. Guess what? What it also shows is that God is not through even with the racist. God is not through even with the betrayer. God continues to move as long as they have a heart that's moved to repenting. That's what God is showing us here. It's not the severity of your sin. It's the willingness to turn away from it when challenged. It's the willingness to be called out when it's, when, when it's shown. Peter gets called out at times and he's got to react to that. We see all these areas every time. You know what Peter shows us? Every time he falls, he repents and goes back to Jesus in humility and in faith. It's not about how often you fall. It's about what you do after you fall. Do you only regret or do you repent? That takes us to, to, to the middle of this, which, you know, we've, we've just seen the sandwich here. Now, the meat of the sandwich, right? We've got betrayers as the top bread, the bottom bread, but the meat of the sandwich is this new command that Jesus gives. Now, he's already said earlier, he says, where I'm going, 
you cannot come. He repeated the same phrase to Peter uh, later when, he, when Peter is pledging his loyalty and Jesus told him, well, where I'm going, you can't follow, but you will follow later. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is showing that because of the status of your heart, on your best day, the best you can do is write checks only to find out that your bank account has insufficient funds. That's the best you can do on your best day. You might have a few more dollars in the bank, so you're not as insufficient as you were maybe on another day, but at the end of the day, you're still completely insufficient. That check still will never clear. Jesus is saying, you cannot follow me until I finish the work I started in you. In order to fully change your heart, Jesus has to love you enough to die for you and then to rise again for you. And they still don't fully understand this, but eventually they will. And then in the midst of this betrayal, Jesus then says, and this, this, this is, it just feels almost like coming out of nowhere. He's, you know, he's done this incredible act, washed their feet, done all these things, called out betrayers, showed that, uh, who, who the betrayer was, approached or confronted the betrayer face to face, said, I know what you're getting ready to do, go handle business, and then moves from being betrayed, being troubled by the betrayal, and then moving to a place of, now I want to call you guys to love each other. None of us are like this. Not naturally. If I'm betrayed and I'm getting ready to die, I probably would try to take all of these people who claim to be loyal to me. I probably would say, all right, listen, if you're loyal to me, we got, we, 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 we got a Benedict Arnold in the group. We got somebody in here that's getting ready to turn, be a turncoat. We got a snitch in the group. We got somebody that needs to be handled. Peter, you're the one that likes to throw your sword around. Go handle business. That's likely what we'd want to do. Protect me because they're going to try to come kill me. And I'm God, so I know everything's coming. Here's what you need to do to protect me. Instead, Jesus moves away from himself and pushes them outward to say, listen, you guys need to love each other. Since I'm leaving soon, look at this again. Now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. What is he talking about there? He's just saying, now that Judas has been deputized to go and be the traitor that he is, Jesus knows that the end is coming. It's already fully happening now. Judas is getting ready to go, go to those Jewish leaders, come back. We're going to see a little bit later how he betrays Jesus. Jesus will get taken off to, to court, and we know what happens after that. So Jesus knows this is it. This is going to be one of my last discourses ever with you all on this side of glory. And now he looks and says, children, I'm with you a little while longer. Just think about the agony. He knows he's getting ready to die. I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the midst of this betrayal, Jesus says, since I'm leaving soon, I know that you're going to long for me. That's what he's saying. I'm leaving soon. I know you all love me as best as you can. And I also know that you love the way that I've been loving you. You're going to miss me. You will remember and mourn not having the love that I've shown you. So here is my new command. 
since I know that this is a love that, that you love, you know why you're going to miss it? Because that's the love you were created for. And since you were created for that love, you're going to long for the things that you need most. And you need that love. So here is my new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another in the same manner that I've loved you. Love one another. Love people the way that Jesus loves you. Jesus is saying that while they will long for the love that's displayed by him toward them, the best way to remember, the best way to even experience his love is by reproducing his love towards each other. That is how we experience God's love. You realize this isn't just I, I, I experience love and I show love and I feel love, but I'm doing it by myself. Or I'm doing it in my prayer closet. I'm doing it just with it. I got my Bible. I got my stuff. That's how love works. I'm good to go until Jesus returns. That's not how Jesus says we show love. And now Jesus is even, uh, he's expanding on something that he's talked about earlier, right? Because earlier Jesus actually gave something we call the golden rule, right? The golden rule was do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Love people the way that you want to be loved. That's the golden rule. Well, Jesus is now expanding this to something even bigger. One might call this the platinum rule. Instead of just saying, love people the way you want to be loved, he's saying, no, don't just love people the way you want to be loved. Love people the way Jesus loves you. Love people the way Jesus loves his betrayers. Love people the way Jesus loves his deniers. And then Jesus doesn't just end there. He says, this type of love is a necessary attribute to prove that they follow Jesus. It is necessary. It is something that should be on display in order to prove that we are followers of Jesus. Loving people, loving other people is an attribute of anyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus. It does no good to say, I love Jesus and I don't love my neighbor. We see that in James. It, it, it does no good to know that my neighbor is in need and then say, I love God while ignoring their needs or telling them, figure it out, pull yourself up. I'll pray for you without doing anything to demonstrate real love for them. Jesus says, people will not know that you follow me if that's your heart posture. Now, it's, it's, it's important to note here we can almost, you know, we want to be careful not to misunderstand this. So Jesus is definitely saying, listen, people are going to know that you follow me if you love each other well. What that does not mean is by loving other people, I am now saved. That's not what that's saying. And sometimes people can kind of jump in and go, well, you know what? I know that I'm good to go with the Lord because I do X, Y, and Z. No, we understand faith in who Jesus is believing that A, Jesus is God in the flesh. He has come to die for our sins. That means, that necessitates a belief in my heart is broken and it needs to be fixed. It's, it doesn't matter how many good things I do for people. If I don't understand my own need to be reconciled to the God who made me, if I don't really understand that, I still may not be a follower of him. I just might be engaging in Christianity cosplay, if you will. But that's not what real uh, Christianity should look like. It should be rooted. So in other words, loving others, it's not the root of your salvation, but it should be the fruit of your salvation. 
The way that you love other people should be emanating out of a love that you know personally between, who, between you and Jesus. So, so, so it's so important then that we, that, that's set on the side. We get that now. The problem is there are many people who say, I have a great relationship. I've been reconciled to God and yet not show real love. So in other words, uh, what Jesus is basically saying is there is no way to prove to people what your faith is. But in other words, people can't see your faith, but they can see your fruit. They can't know what they can't see what the roots are doing underneath. They can't see the roots in the soil. They can't see the roots in the ground. They can't see the ways that it's absorbing water. They can't truly know how the sun is being absorbed in. They don't understand or see the actual act of photosynthesis. They don't know any of that. But what they can see is the fruit. And so for the Christian who's truly rooted in the blood of Jesus, then the fruit that comes out is the love for their brother and sister in Christ. Their love for fellow image bearers. That's the fruit. So we can't say that we love God and not show that fruit. Because uh, what that's saying is that either A, we're faking, or B, there's real work that needs to continue to be done on our hearts. If you really think about this, what Jesus is saying is, you can't love people well if you don't know how well you've been loved by Jesus. You, you, the, the, the love we're called to reproduce, you don't get to determine how to love others. Jesus has already done that. You don't get to write the, the rules on how to love people. Jesus has already displayed that. And sadly, we see countless examples of ways in which human beings have failed in loving each other well. Many of our individual conflicts are a result of us not loving each other well. Many of our uh, uh, global conflicts arise out of a failure to love each other well. Many of our political conflicts arise out of a failure to love each other well. Here we are, it's Independence Day weekend. And we're, uh, you know, folks all over are preparing, obviously, with, in, in the midst of coronavirus, some, very, uh, uh, some, some ways that people have had to kind of adjust in ways that they're going to celebrate. And so there's going to be some customized ways of celebration. But nonetheless, this weekend, this is what people are remembering, right? We're remembering a day or remembering a time where this country celebrated or, or, or fought for its independence from Britain. And it's a time that people remember uh, this idea. They would argue that the British government was tyrannical. And in many ways, the British government was not showing love well to their fellow American colonists. And so what happens is when people don't feel loved, when people don't trust, when that marble jar is empty, we react. And so the revolution was truly, for some people, a time to say we need justice and we need freedom and we need to be loved well and we have not been loved well. This lack of love that was being demonstrated led to people deciding to rise up, fight back, take our freedom. But even in that story, even in that narrative, even in that history, there's one thing we can't overlook. Many times, the one who's been betrayed can also become the betrayer. That's for any of us, individually even. If you've been betrayed, don't think that you're exempt from being the betrayer. 
You see here, when you look at throughout, throughout our history, uh, while fighting against what some people were calling tyrannical governance, this country practiced its own form of tyranny and betrayal. From the slaughter of indigenous peoples, the stealing of their land, to the supposed uh, uh, evangelization of their children with, with the goals of making them more easily subjugated and, and more easily assimilated, or to the kidnapping of, of Africans and forced labor and forced breeding and forced dissolution of families, all happening while fighting in a revolution against their betrayer. This is why uh, Frederick Douglass, great uh, former slave abolitionist, this is why he said this, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers, your hymns, your sermons, your thanksgiving, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and more bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Now that might be jarring and hard, and it's hard to hear and it's hard to accept, but we have to accept it that while two things might be true at the same time, one can be betrayed and be a betrayer at the same time. And what does Jesus say to us in that? Number one, who are we as believers? Where is the church when we see people not being loved well? Are we so myopically focused on just the ways that we feel betrayed that we don't see the ways that we are betrayers? Are we not able then to do what Peter did in repenting when those things are pointed out? You see, this is one of those situations where we have to ask ourselves, are we a Judas or are we a Peter? in situations like that. Am I a Judas? Where maybe I might look at some things, oh, that was too bad, really sad, that's really messed up, I hate that that happened, and just keep it moving? And maybe be so overwhelmed, maybe with grief, that I just don't like being reminded of it, it makes me angry or upset to the point where I'm having such anxiety about that? Or Peter, where it's like, man, yet again, I see that. That is so my heart and I'm so broken and I need to turn back to Jesus. Look, throughout history, we've got way too much evidence to prove we don't love each other well. We have not and we often do not, which begs the question, do we then know how we have been loved by Jesus? In other words, do we know how we, betrayers, have been loved by Jesus? He says, all people will know that we are disciples of him when we go the way of self-denial. This is the only way to love. This is the love Jesus showed us. This is the love that is the new commandment to our lives. The platinum rule. God is glorified when you love others like Jesus loved you. 
We only do this when we live for God and not for self. So may we go our way, giving our life completely to Jesus. And when we fall, returning ourselves completely to Jesus so that people see Jesus in us. God's glory is always on the line. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, continuing to remind us of who you are and reminding us of who we are. We're thankful that you, uh, you meet us not in our perfection. You meet us not when we have everything together. You meet us when we are in the midst of betraying or on the cusp of betraying, and you love us so much that you sit at the table with us. You recline with us. You listen to our questions. You take our inquiries. You even convict us. You tell us about ourselves lovingly. And then you give us space. You give us time to even consider. You give us grace to be able to react. You give us grace to be able to repent. God, you are so loving that you continue to pursue us even when we run away from you. And then you enable our hearts to return to you. God, I pray that you would give us deep, abiding conviction in the ways that we are running from you, the ways that we don't love each other well as a result. God, I pray that you give us deep conviction that we would not be so personally focused on our relationship with you that we miss the ways in which we don't love fellow image bearers. God, more than anything else, we say this, we pray this, that we want to make your name known. We want to make your name famous. We want to be a part of this kingdom that's coming. And so in so doing, God, give us a deep and abiding love for each other, for our neighbor, for our fellow citizens, for our fellow uh, folks who live among us. God, make us a people that are known for, for who we love and how we love and not be known for the people that we exclude or that we overlook. God, ultimately, that is the way that people will know that we follow you. And we don't even care about just being famous for following you. We actually want to be known for following you so that the object of our followership gets all the glory. So we do that, Father, praying that you indeed would get all glory and honor in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.